So content warning for this episode of the podcast. Uh, we have a section that is about pornography and has open conversation about sexuality and porn. And if you don't like that, you should probably not listen to that part. We're going to save it till the end. So you can just turn this off after the second segment if you are not into porn. But who isn't into porn? That's right. So it's fine. You really sprung that content <laughs> warning on us. You just didn't even say, like, I'm going to do the content warning now, Chris. You just did it. Yeah. Yeah, I know. No, she's not fucking around. Alpha is fuck. It's like the episode of Cops, right? Like where they start you off at the beginning with like exactly. cops may contain. Yeah. Okay, welcome to episode three of the Game Garden Podcast. I am Jocelyn, and with me are my three good friends. Introduce yourselves. I'm Ian Williams. I'm Chris Carrick. We should have a defined order next time we do this. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm Trevor Strunk, who intentionally waited to the end. Social experiment complete. Bless you, Trevor. um, (laughs) In case you've been living under a rock... Uh, the latest World of Warcraft expansion came out in August, which is now two months ago. Um, myself <laughs> and my good friend Ian have been playing very casually, definitely not all the time. Um, but we are going to have an interview today with some founding members or early members of a little organization called Elitist Jerks, who were some of the earliest to do like the number crunching stuff, um, that really changed the face of how people uh, play games socially in terms of like min-maxing and stuff. Hmm. Um, so we're doing kind of a retrospective on WoW. We're also going to talk about RimWorld, which got a pretty big update recently and is kind of an interesting game in terms of all of the different ways you can die. And finally, last but not least, we're uh, going to have a much anticipated Among Us and No One Else segment <laughs> called Chris's Porn Corner. Uh, so Chris is going to welcome us into his porn corner where we look at all of the different kinds of porn that we came up with and talk about um, them in really serious and not mocking ways. Definitely. No, definitely. Yeah. We're going to take it very seriously and do a good job. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Because if you're going to take something seriously, porn is it. So yep. let's talk about RimWorld. Okay. It feels weird to say Rim World after talking about porn. Yes, it does. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> we haven't skipped to the final segment, everyone. This is anyway. Still, yeah, it hasn't started yet. This is Rim World segment. <laughs> this is the Rim World segment. <laughs> this is a good preview for how seriously we're going to take the final segment. I this promise is- we're going to do a good job. Anyway, so Rim World is yeah. a fine-grained simulation game a la Dwarf Fortress, uh, where you are a, like, it's a god game, basically, where you manage a colony of settlers on a alien planet. and build... Really pathetic settlers. Yeah, well, really? that's true. <laughs> um, there's 
yeah, I don't even know where to begin with talking about it. It's a base building game mostly. Um, you kind of set priorities, and the AI kind of drives your characters as they fulfill their responsibilities, which is planting things or building things. Or yeah, you need to collect and generate resources. Basically, it's it's like most other games in this genre where you set priorities for different people in your colony, and as you accumulate more people you can do more stuff and get more stuff like it's basically you're supposed to snowball so the difference though between this and other um similar games is how brutal and unforgiving the world of rim world is <laughs> i don't know oh, that boy. it's like that much more unforgiving than dwarf fortress and i never played dwarf fortress okay see i think so. that it's really hard to talk about rimworld without talking about yeah, dwarf fortress i agree right? well i wish someone would have told me ahead of time well i'm telling you now um all right i'll load it up <laughs> do not load up dwarf fortress <laughs> no, <laughs> no like dwarf fortress is legitimate so like dwarf fortress is my favorite game my favorite video game of all time probably and it's this weird, I'm sure that we've talked about it here before, but it's less a game and it's more like outsider art, right? It's written. We did in- talk about it on the uh, Stardew yeah. Valley episode. Okay. So like, so like I won't go that far. If you, if people want to hear about it, then they can go like double up and listen to the Stardew Valley episode. Right. Nice. But, Good marketing. That's right. Right. I got you. Um, but <laughs> <laughs> so, so Dwarf Fortress was, did this really interesting thing in that a lot of the stories that arose, uh, like Dwarf Fortress is about, procedural unforeseen behavior on the part of the ai right so like it's about um you know dwarf fortress is again a base building game just like uh rim world and you play dwarves and the dwarves are all crazy um but they're also kind of not right like like the kind of crazy behavior that they do is mostly related to bugs because it's this just sprawling game at this point and it's written it's it's coded by by one guy, right? And he keeps adding all of these layers onto it. So things interact in weird ways, right? So things break. So your dwarves go crazy and they do strange things, like they'll throw a baby down the well, or they'll uh you know, they'll they'll start making art about the horrible things that are happening around them, right? Um and so it was really popular, even though it was free, right? And um people started trying to the the creator basically like lives off of donations, right? Like he makes so many donations in a year now um, that, that he can do that, but he doesn't charge for the game. But like Dwarf Fortress had this moment in like 2009, 2010 um, where it like, he got it right up in the New York times and stuff like that. And people started trying to make basically Dwarf Fortress alikes, right? And they flooded steam briefly and they were, they really, really missed the point, right? Of what made Dwarf Fortress work which is sure. that Dwarf Fortress didn't work, right? So, like, they're sitting there trying to, uh, these these games try to recapture this this spontaneity, right, without really recognizing why it was spontaneous. So, to get back on RimWorld, right, part of the thing that, that, that makes it uh, work so well, and um, it's something that people have to play, it's this very stripped-down, like, 2D, top-down base-building game, is that the people there, like the dwarves in Dwarf Fortress, um, are basically, they're out of their minds, right? Like, they do strange and crazy things. But it's not because of bugs, it's because of really clever coding, right? The people, the difference between RimWorld and the other Dwarf Fortress alike, right, in terms of the way that, like, the brutality works and... Um, uh, your colonists losing their minds and doing like strange things 
all uh, you know the art creation all of that is because it's the only one of the dwarf fortress alikes which i feel like really paid attention to dwarf fortress instead of just being like well, let's make a base building game and we'll make it filled with like weird creatures you know dwarves or gnomes or villagers or whatever the hell it is right okay so let's 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 do a little exercise um so the three of us who have played rimworld let's all go down the line and talk about our favorite thing that's ever happened to us in rimworld mm-hmm. i can start if you want while you think go ahead just so people can get a feel of what you say when like we, we say ridiculous things so my favorite rimworld moment for myself was um I was sort of plodding along and my village was fine. And then uh, we got attacked and there was a fire. Um, And one of my colonists looked at the fire, fell deeply in love with the concept of fire, became a pyromaniac, set the entire village on fire, and then self-immolated and died. (laughs) That's pretty good. Do you want to hear mine? It is. Yes. Okay. I have a colony. It's going pretty well, but like I run out of food because it's like maybe like my second time playing and I ended up settling on a, like a really cold world. Right. Um, so I have no food and everybody starts starving. This one guy goes crazy because like basically I forced him to, I forced him into cannibalism in order to survive. <laughs> All right. He makes so, sense. So like, as you do, we're down to like three colonists, two old ladies and this cannibal. Okay. He dies. Right. But like one of the old ladies was, and I didn't know this secretly in love with him. So she goes oh, crazy no. and she attacks the other old lady. They start <laughs> stripping off their clothes as they get into a knife fight. Okay. Wow. And eventually like one old lady kills the other one, but she's crippled and she can't really move that well. So it's just this one naked old lady in a pile of corpses and with a knife. So I sent her out like to end the colony. We had like sometimes these big rare monsters spawn that are like worth a lot of money. If you kill them, the thrombos. Yeah. The thrombos. Yeah, thrombos. So I sent her into, I sent her naked with a knife into a uh, solitary combat with a thrombo in order to, or in order to end the colony. Wow. wow. Um, okay. So mine is, so I've basically only had two colonies cause I just save scummed my first one and kept it going oh forever. And, um, <laughs> I, so anyway, so I so I had this one colonist <laughs> with me. I have no way to defend myself. It's not what you should do when you play this game. So from the start, I had this one, two colonists who were married, and one of them was really good at building things and hunting. So she was always hunting all the time and just progressively started accruing worse and worse deformities. Like she lost her leg at one point. She lost <laughs> fingers. She lost her jaw, like got shotgunned off during a raid. So that just kept continuing. Wow. Until the game has a really bad model of uh, like interpersonal relationships or it's very simple. So she had a really high ugliness score and no one, everyone hated her, even though she did all the work in the colony uh, and had been there since the beginning. And uh, even though I like gave her a prosthetic jaw and a cybernetic eye and like a peg leg because I couldn't afford a cybernetic leg. <laughs> I don't know. It sounds pretty ugly to me, Chris. She oh, Chris. was the... <laughs> epitome of beauty and her husband hated her like even the marriage score couldn't outweigh the ugliness score <laughs> so awesome. um oh, no. she, yeah we just became like constantly insulted as she skulked around the colony building every essential thing they needed um yeah wow it's like an allegory shout out to matilda <laughs> rimworld takes you to some like rimworld takes you to some like uh some some really dark places like i like yeah, I'm on record. i can play like three colonies in a row and then i'm like i'm going to stardew valley now yeah <laughs> I, i'm like i i i'm on record as saying that like i don't really have emotional reactions to most games it's like witcher 3 and then like before that it's been like 
20 years, right? But, like, when the old lady thing happened, I really got bummed out. Like, it was really dark. And I was just like, I, I don't really feel like playing anything else for, like, you know, the next couple hours. I was, yeah. I was like, I'm, I, I, I was done for the night. I think one thing that really distinguishes RimWorld from Dwarf Fortress is the fact that there's an AI storyteller, or you can play without one, but most most times you're playing with like something that's giving you like rhythms that are supposed to generate interesting stories, where that's something that kind of you re- rely on the the procedural way dwarves interact in Dwarf Fortress to create, but RimWorld has this actually explicit AI trying to give you interesting experiences by like giving you waves of enemies or like um specific natural events that like get worse and worse as your colony progresses and i think and by that, interesting you mean devastating emotionally and spiritually yeah but it's it's <laughs> it's uh it's an interesting way to try to systemize like interesting storytelling um which is something dwarf fortress doesn't try to do yeah well i also think that like rimworld is and this is strange right when i say this but uh, to, to to people who have played dwarf fortress dwarf fortress is really not a hard game Dwarf Fortress is intimidating because the guy just doesn't believe, the guy who creates it, Tarn Adams, just doesn't believe in having a graphical uh, UI, right? Like, you have to memorize hotkeys and everything like that, and if you don't have a tile set, then it's all ASCII text and stuff like that. But it's not hard once you get over the learning curve. Fucking RimWorld is hard, right? Like, it's, I I am by the skin of my teeth every single time I play it, uh, if I play yep. it on, like, normal difficulty. And, um... That's good. Like, like that's refreshing coming from Dwarf Fortress. I mean, I prefer Dwarf Fortress because it's like slightly weirder, and you can do like a lot of very strange things with it. But um, RimWorld is definitely like, you know, it's 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 hard in all the right ways. Still, yeah, this I'm is interested. not the porn segment that's coming. <laughs> I was going to say that it's a perfect uh, segue. No, I had a serious that? thing. What, right. Trev? Oh, I was going to say that's the perfect segue to the porn segment. No. No. We're still ever. No. No, 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 no. I was just so, saying. Chris, um, having read your statement of purpose for graduate schools, oh, I have some God. insight into your interests. Um, and But no, like even beyond that, uh, I know from talking to you before, like you're really interested, and so am I, in how people break things, but also how things kind of break on their own. And it sounds like sure. the way that Ian's describing it, like that's a lot of the appeal in Dwarf Fortress. So I'm yeah. interested in what we think about um, purposely creating a buggy game. Not like a buggy game, but like the good thing about Dwarf Fortress was that it was kind of like random and unpredictable. Like, can you program unpredictability like does it succeed in that way with the ai storyteller do you think i mean my experience with the world is that the ai storyteller is very predictable and it's not necessarily to the detriment of the game but like having done i started a second colony to prep for the podcast um and like this everything's happening in kind of the same way like at first the raiders only come one at a time i'm playing on like easy to medium or whatever so the raiders come in like small groups and i know they'll come at hard like larger (laughs) groups later i don't know if it changes on harder difficulties but like things are like happening in a very prescribed way um and i don't it's like i guess the unpredictability comes in what your responses are to those things and not necessarily from the game itself it's like top down instead of bottom up yeah the the unpredictability uh in to me is not in like the invasions and stuff like that but it's in the interpersonal relationships between the p 
people in air quotes, right? Like, and, and, and it's that way in Dwarf Fortress too, right? Like, um, the invasions by goblins, which is, you know, a similar mechanic as what RimWorld's got with the gangs and stuff like that that invade. Um, those are all fairly predictable. Like, you know, you get one, it's, it's, it's based on like how much wealth you've built up in your, in your fortress and everything like that. Um, so, so you can tell what's coming. But the unpredictability in Dwarf Fortress is like the unpredictability in RimWorld. It's that like you don't exactly know what the threshold is for ugliness before someone hates you, right? And can that be offset by, you know, feeding someone who's wounded, right? If you, like, can you create a pyromaniac? Like that person who goes and sees a fire and falls in love with it becomes a pyromaniac is not always going to become a pyromaniac in the next game, right? Like, you know, that's the kind of unpredictability, I think. Which is interesting, right? Because, like, I I think that one of the things that's so compelling about this, like, people say it's the stories, right? And they kind of think of it in this term of, like, narrative. Like, uh, there's a plot that happens. I think that I, I think that what's compelling about these games is that they're kind of, like, messy in the way that, like, our social lives are messy. You know, like, like you never really... You know, you can you can predict only so far how like a friend or an enemy or a lover, or whoever it is, is going to react to something that you do, right? It's never one hundred percent. And that's where I think this in Dwarf Fortress and the other games, like I think this is what they're reaching for. So basically the lesson that Rimworld teaches us is that at any moment, anyone in your life might become a pyromaniac and set themselves on fire. So, Chris, um, speaking of interpersonal relationships, you linked a piece that I absolutely did not read okay. um, that that looked pretty interesting about how the relationship system worked. Sure. Yeah. Do you want to talk about yeah, that? I'll, t- I'll bring that up. So that's a shout out to my my classmate and peer, Claudia Lowe, who wrote it. It's on her blog, sw- swilo.me. Put in the show notes. <laughs> and this is a blog Which we post. have. Yeah, which which we have. And uh, she wrote a blog post. Uh, it's called On RimWorld Relationships. And it is based on someone decompiled the code of RimWorld and was kind of and, was, you know, um, figure out how some of these like more mystifying systems like we talked about, the procedural interpersonal stuff worked. And uh, it turned out that the relationship system in RimWorld is modeling a very weirdly patriarchal system of heteronormativity um and i'll just call out some of the specific things in there which was that uh in rim world men cannot be bisexual but women can't are always bisexual uh huh. and it depends on the beauty sc- beauty score of the person um courting them if they uh if they like will break from their assign so rim world you're assigned an orientation straight or gay but women can bend that if the person who's courting them is, like, beautiful enough. So um, men can be gay but not bisexual? Yes. Sweet. Um, and what's... Uh, it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I feel like I need to bring it up now so that I can hit uh, one more. That's, like, the main thing that's that jumped out to me. Oh, yeah, and also women will uh, are rarer to be the initiators of romance. It's you like men are biased more to initiate romance in uh So they actually Rimworld. program gender bias into the game. Yes. It's like hard, it's hard coded on the on a systems level. And it's a it's a weird thing because I think the baseline thing that a lot of people expect from video games like Rimworld or like Dark Souls is that the gender thing will be like ev- like coded like programmatically the same on both sides and this is one example where it's fundamentally not like Deep down in the systems level, the genders are not coded equally. Um, That's bizarre. Yes, it's like that. Can we get the people who make RimWorld on this podcast and interrogate them as to why they made this decision? I think it's also an auteur game, so you can ask Tynan specifically because I think that's just the one guy who makes it. Oh well, 
Ian, PR guy, get on it. <laughs> I'll, I can, I can shoot him an email or something like that. But, uh, you know, uh, you know, we're talking about bugs. Like, that may just also be a weird bug, right? So, like, when I was working on Age of Conan, um, we had this pretty serious bug in beta where, uh, female characters were doing less damage than males, right? <laughs> and <laughs> That's it was not because, good. and, and yeah. it was because what, what ended up happening was that, um, damage was based on swing speed. And because of the, you know, some difference, you know, the difference in the models, right? Uh, the women were just swinging more slowly, right? It was just a total fluke, right? But for like two months, this was, this was a thing, right? Because it was like proof of like our gender bias and that, uh, no, 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 no. I would argue that that's not a fluke. It's because the models were programmed where all of the women were smaller than the men. Like that was an intentional. That's choice. potentially true. Like, like, like I'm saying that, like, from my standpoint as QA, like, like from what I knew, it was a fluke. That's probably a better way of putting it, right? Like, I have okay, no idea. Because what I can, went. I can see a line of argument where they're like, okay, so like, sure, you didn't intend for this cascade effect, but at the same time, yeah, you coded it yeah, so that swing speed, right? Yeah. yeah, you coded it so swing speed depends on models. You built the models so that the genders were always different. I yeah, mean, like, like that's symptomatic of body types as they're represented in game. Right. Exactly. Yes. Yes. In, in in that way, it was like it was like a distinct choice. I'm talking more about like you know the cascade effect or, and stuff like that. It, it, in other words, it was not a deliberate like conscious choice, right? But as right. we all know, you know, like 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 gender politics don't really work that way, right? Like it's just... yeah, like it's just interesting to me, and I'm not trying to give you a hard time, but that mirrors the same logic that a lot of like real life sexism does where like the the cascade of assumptions is women are smaller that must mean that they're worse at sports so we're not going to put women into sports and we assume that they're bad at them like just simple things like that um the the sort of like distribution of those assumptions is exactly the same as what you just described right um so yeah, like you know, and, and and maybe there's some kind of weird error going on there and stuff like that, you know. Which you know, again, uh, you know, like you said, can be kind of like uh, subtle is probably not the right word I'm looking for, but you know, I'll use it uh, a, a, a subtle bias, right? Rather than like some kind of weird like hard coded thing, or it may just be like a bug, like maybe he just <clears throat> flagged shit wrong, you know? I don't know. Maybe he just doesn't think male bi- bisexuality exists. <laughs> I mean, well, pe- it's, I mean, it's people like, do. It's, it's, I don't think he's made any statements on that, and it's, so it's impossible to know if this is like an intentional or unintentional thing without him actually speaking to it. But um, yeah, it's yeah. definitely. Well, he definitely, let me ask. It is specific. It's a very specific thing, <laughs> for sure. So I've been quiet because I haven't played Rimworld, but um, let me ask, uh, which is you know my fault. Uh, but let me ask. Oh, uh, I'm not blaming you guys, is what I'm saying. Um, <laughs> but. Uh, I'm not blaming you personally, uh, but no, I'm kind of interested what, um, you know, there's, there's this sort of question between intentional choices uh, that um, sort of convey uh, a knowing sexism and then choices that, um, you know, are unintentional and convey this sort of embedded sexism, right? And this is sort of the distinction between, you know, we can imagine, say, say Tynan did want to um, have this in room world as some sort of like, I, I, albeit embedded and, and hard to discern statement on bisexuality, as opposed to say the age of Conan people who, if they were being sexist was something like they were just, they were bringing their own real world assumptions in. 
I guess my question is, which is worse? Um, is it worse? Oh, oh boy. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, I mean, or you can, or you can ask, like, I mean, you can ask it in less provocative ways, like, you know, what is a, what, what is a more interesting problem or however you want to say it. But like, you see what I'm saying? Like the, the distinction between, oh, I meant to be, I meant to sort of say this thing about gender and it's a problem versus I said this thing about gender and didn't intend it. Is there like, I mean, do you, do you find one of them to be more distasteful than the other or different in some way? Or are they kind of the same? I think you're going to get a different answer about this from every person, like mm, fair enough. humanity. A, a weird but that doesn't of, mean we can't talk about well, it. Well, let's, let's start asking them. Let's oh. just start getting the answers. <laughs> the weird thing about the RimWorld example, too, is if the code had never been decompiled, it would have been almost impossible to ever find out because you would just be like, oh, right. the, di- the dice roll didn't happen in the favor for this woman to initiate romance. And, like, you would have to have such a huge sample size and, like, actually do a study to ever discern it without, like, decompiling the code. Yeah, and to me, right, that's true. more insidious because it's, it's like weird. a – it's. Yeah, like that that type of embedded um within the code. Like I find this example fascinating because you you because we think of I think that we not just in games but in code in general, there's like it's funny because there's two camps. There's like humanity at large who um is really invested in thinking that like code is some kind of objective reality that doesn't have any kind of political inflections and then there's academia who won't shut the fuck up about code having political inflections and (laughs) so there's like guilty as charged yeah yeah, exactly no but this is a useful conversation to have um and so i think i think that for the for the for academics we're like yeah decompile the code like see what happens um let's find out what's going on here for the public at large yeah they assume it's a random number generator um but that doesn't mean that those values can't be embedded right like the 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 new or a couple of years ago new catchy phrase for this was values and design right like um values get embedded in the ways that we design things um that's like the the safer form of calling it politics and academia and <laughs> um it is uh yeah. and it's sponsored no, right. by intel and um <sighs> not kidding but I, the, I didn't think you were but that's uh, I mean, it's... <laughs> the, the thing is that um to me as like the woman on this podcast so i'm going to talk a lot um <laughs> uh the mm. thing is that for me that seems more insidious but at the same time um i am much more infuriated by the age of conan example like i'm like yeah of course that happened and if any anybody at any stage could have caught that and stopped it and like the fact that those models cascaded in that way is fucking infuriating to me like because it reflects like a complete disregard for the way that those assumptions build up and cause bad values in real life, right? Like they assume that all women are the same size or like, and that that size is smaller than men. And that's a known problem in games, right? In terms of like representation. And then they, they code things out based on models, which is not at all representative of how things work in real life, but is one of the assumptions that people make that, that gets really shitty for like people of different races and, and genders. And like, then they end up with a cascade effect down the line and they're like, oops, we couldn't have predicted that. And it's like, no, if you had any idea of how, like systemic oppression works yeah you would have predicted that day one because you wouldn't have designed your game that way and so that i find much more bad to me 
Well, there's also like, uh, you know, I think in the Funcom example, there's, there's, there's also a question of scale, right? Like, I don't think it's good that this one person shop kind of coded in like this no bisexuality for men kind of thing. But I can like squint and I can say, okay, well, this is like a lone artist and he's weird in this way and it's not good, but it's not representative of you know, this, in, in, in Funcom's case, you're talking about a company that's like funded by like Norwegian oil interests and stuff like that. And even though they don't have any idea, like investors don't have any idea, there's something about the way that cascaded, like you're talking about, um, which represents the real world in a way that like, I just don't get the same sense that like RimWorld's problem does. Does that make sense? And that it's like yeah. linked to all of these like real world things, and there's like it's not just one dude doing it; it's like two hundred employees, you know, that kind of thing. You know, well, it's sort it's of like an issue. Of, go ahead. Oh, go ahead. No, I was just gonna say it's it's this is short. Like it's kind of like if you noticed uh, like sexism in a film, right? Like if you notice sexism in Citizen Kane or something like that, versus if you saw it in like a long running sitcom, right? Like you'd think it's worse in the sitcom because like you could at least chalk it up to Orson Welles being sort of a chauvinist or whatever. And you kind of can have like a, a reason for it as instead of with the sitcom, you're just like, well, that's just society. Like that's systemic. I think that like, what was I going to say? Oh fuck. It was really good too. Oh, sorry, um, no. oh, oh, stakeholders. So there's an issue at scale also with stakeholders. Um, and I think this is a larger issue in like capitalism. So I'm just going to stand on this soapbox brief- briefly. Um, so I think that, um, most game companies, and and we saw this in Gamergate a little bit, um, where it was not profitable or necessarily a good choice for game companies to come out against Gamergate um, because it was a gamble over whether it would blow over or not, um, and it would put their uh, employees at risk if they did, and there was there was all kinds of decision making that was done there. Whenever it comes to stakeholders in, like, just the normal way of things, like, a vocal minority complaining about gender issues in a game is, like, a non-issue. Like, in terms of how most companies, not just in the games industry, prioritize um, the people that have a vested interest. So that includes players, um, people who have put capital into it employees um within internally in the company like team leads all of that different structure um i think that a lot of the time like players or users have the least stake which is weird and messed up and it's definitely not the same for all companies um but like twitter is another example uh where consistently all of the decisions that twitter have made have been with investors in mind and advertisers and have done shit all for users and i think that um when you talk about an indie video game as opposed to a game at scale like a game at scale has to, they they have to weigh the the costs and benefits of like being aware of that kind of stuff because they would they could totally like hire a consultant who was like a diversity consultant and some companies do this right especially for hiring practices they have diversity specialists that are like hey you need to be careful about how you're doing this. And by the way, like all these assumptions you made here are going to cause a problem later on. Um, whether or not they do that or how deeply they do that depends on how they allocate like the needs of their stakeholders. So that's a statement, I think, about how like the funding structure and priorities of game companies work too. 
I dig. Yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, that was kind of a conversation killer. <laughs> no, I, I think I think it's a good. I mean, I think it's a good uh, exclamation point on the discussion because I mean, it is. It does sort of key back into that, and I mean, I I don't have anything to add. It's just really good. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, I think that it plays with, um, you know, just just kind of like the indie uh, versus. Uh, I hesitate to say AAA, but like everything else. No, say AAA. Pretty much AAA. <laughs> I don't want to say AAA. You know, like like, like say it. No. Because because then I'll start talking. <laughs> no, I, God, I don't want you to talk on this podcast, Ian. It's too much. Yeah, that would be awful. No, be I know, awful. but it's like it's 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 so full. It's just like like I don't think that like the AAA indie uh, designation is is uh, as as clearly demarcated as it once was, and I think that it's uh, I I think that in in large part like even if you're just looking at like the AAA space like so many companies have had to scale down or been eaten up or are yoked to you know or, or are functionally like small but yoked to like a, a domineering much larger publisher that i think it's just really hard to like make a designation about you know AAA you know at, um it, it really is like these kind of like the few remaining like one shop uh like one person shops versus uh, you know, like you know, everyone we, else. Yeah, I mean, we talked about one man, like, like No Man's Sky, and about how like that was <laughs> one man's life. One man's life. Not getting away with that one. No, oh, but, like, but like, but like, oh, honestly, boy. like, so like, that's a small team, but that is not in any fucking appreciable, understandable way in. In, in, in the way the term was originally meant, an indie game, right? It was distributed yeah. by Sony. It made, you know, it sold for $60. It made a billion fucking dollars. You know, that's that's not an indie game. And, and no amount of, like, auteur horse shit is going to, like, change the fact that it's, that, it's, that it's not an indie game, right? I would be interested to see, and I don't know any examples of this, but if y'all do, I would be interested. Examples where... um because funding structures of video games are changing, especially with indie games, right, with stuff like Kickstarter and crowdfunding. So I would be interested to hear a case where the stakeholders are the players, right, like where it's funded by the players. And a lot of those have like augmented by by big studios. But I would be interested to hear what happens if something like this goes down um, with a game that is directly funded by players, because I think in that case, players feel more of a sense of entitlement not in like the gross millennials are entitled way, but they're like, hey, we paid for this. Like, not just bought the game. Like, we helped you make this game. Like, and we feel betrayed by the choices you've made here. Because something similar happened, um, but not about like politics when Tim Schaefer like had two different sessions for Broken Age. Um, people were really mad, like extra mad, because they had given him money and felt betrayed. So I'd be interested to hear if um something like this happens with that kind of funding structure if they feel more beholden to change it. And I don't know how RimWorld is funded. God, that's a good question. I don't remember how RimWorld is funded. It might be a Kickstarter game, potentially. It is an early access still, too, so I don't know. Yeah. Because um, we can just, like, send your friend Claudia's thing viral and fucking, if it's Kickstarter, maybe enough people will get mad that it'll change, I know change that, the world, Claudia. I know that Amplitude Studios... Uh, who mm -hmm. do um, Endless Space, Endless Legend, and Dungeon of the Endless, they have this uh, program, I can't remember, the name's escaping me right now, but if you buy the game, like if you buy the game, not pre-order or anything like that, you can go to the forums and they run like polls, like what feature do you want to see next? Uh, what do you want to see? Do you want to see a new race added to the game? Do you want to see a new scenario? Um, 
whatever. So like they have this very, uh, you know, they actively invite the players in, uh, as far as like giving their feedback and stuff like that and actually actively make like crowdsourcing design decisions. So I don't know if that's the kind of thing that you're talking about. Um, I don't know of any problems. Um, it's, it seemed to do well for them so far and they've been around for, you know, six odd years or so now. Rimworld is a Kickstarter game. I shared the link to the campaign in uh, the Discord. I don't know. Like, I'm in kind of a weird position here because because I work for Riot and because, like, Riot has a... Even though it makes, like, a big game, like, it has a, a history of responding really, really quickly to player demands um, and and desires. So I feel like... I don't know. Like, maybe we should... Like, I want to be able to hold big companies, like, more accountable for that kind of thing, I guess. Um, not that Riot is perfect, but like it's definitely a model for a big company being able to respond to player desires and demands. Um, I don't know. I'm mad online. <laughs> <laughs> uh, should we leave it there and move on to the next section? I think we're at like 30 minutes on that. Wow, what a great, amazing, what a great discussion on RimWorld we just had. Uh, this is Chris, the editor. And as part of my edit- editorial duties, I'm chiming in here with this addendum to say that Claudia's article that uh, we discussed in this podcast got picked up by Rock Paper Shotgun and is going to have a much uh, expanded version um, with interviews and a lot more detailed analysis going up there. I'm not sure when. That's kind of outside of my purview of, of knowledge, but definitely be looking for that there. And um, up next is the Elitist Jerks interview. And don't be, don't feel too strange if you don't hear my voice or Trev's voice because we are not a part of that interview. And I understand if you want to skip it as a result of that, but <laughs> I swear it's pretty good even though me and Trev aren't in it. Anyway, um, catch you later in the final segment of the podcast. In the past, from me now, which is the future. See ya, bye bye. Hey, so today we've got two guests who are members of the guild uh, Elitist Jerks uh, from the game World of Warcraft, and um, we wanted to Might interview. Yeah, uh, it's 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 a little game called WoW, um, and uh, Luke Sullivan who plays a character named uh, Chocula, and Morgan Vetter who plays a character named Load Runner. Now we're going to work under a couple assumptions, which is that you, the listener, know that World of Warcraft exists and it's a very large massively multiplayer online game. Um, but uh, the guild is maybe something that they're in. Elitist Jerks is maybe something that you're not entirely familiar with. Elitist Jerks um, were, and well, they are uh, a very active uh, guild and once upon a time did very hardcore raiding, which is kind of like the end game. Um, but the website became this hotbed of math and trying to figure out how to play WoW well, because WoW once upon a time had very obfuscated mechanics. And it became famous in video game creation circles as a way, as as a place where high-level design discussions happened amongst players. Um, and it became influential enough that lots of people um, uh, who were in elitist jerks, uh, lots may be overstating it, but, but, but many people who were 
posting on the Elitist Jerks forums, and some people who were even in uh, the Elitist Jerks Guild went on to work on World of Warcraft uh, um, at Blizzard. So what we wanted to do is we wanted to talk with some people who were there kind of in the early days and uh, just chat a little bit about how Elitist Jerks evolved and everything like that. So Luke and Morgan, thank you for being here with us. Yeah, thank you. So um, the first thing I want to ask um, is I'm kind of fascinated by the way Elitist Jerks started. So I know that initially uh, the the early ranks were in uh, Goon Squad, which is the Something Awful Guild, which is in all MMOs, and uh, they like to raise hell and everything like that. Um, but go ahead and tell uh, go, go ahead and tell us exactly how Elitist Jerks kind of like uh, broke off from Goon Squad and and, and the circumstances around that. So uh, I'm not a perfect uh, person to relate to this because I wasn't in the beta guild. But basically my understanding is that EJ was the uh, goon squad beta guild. Um, then when World of Warcraft launched, um, EJ kind of spun off. I think the idea was um, at the time, the, the, you know, the people in EJ wanted to raid, do endgame stuff. Um, and so the model for that was EverQuest, which had a very kind of structured endgame rating where you had to have a lot of cooperation between guilds a lot of the time. Um, Goon Squad at the time and pretty much still has a reputation for being kind of a uh, Goonie squad. Just like a, you know, kind Disorganized. of Disorganized. Yeah, that too. Um, I mean, now, now they've had a lot of success in EVE, but they still aren't, you know, that popular. Um, I guess... They, they just got, have kind of a mixed reputation. So I think uh, the people who are in the Goon Squad beta guild just wanted to try and just be more serious about the game. Um, so I think that's a lot of why EJ spun off from the very beginning. I wasn't a member, so I can't say that for certain, but that was my impression. It's more of my understanding is that you have um, Goon Squad wanted to be open to all the SA people, and that is a frightening prospect because a lot of them... <laughs> just just ran around and had no idea, didn't read anything, and just asked the newbie questions all day over and over again. And Goon Squad wanted to try to open that, try to be open to that, and the when raiding became a thing, wanted to try to um, just herd the eternal swarm of cats that were the baby raiders and try to be all-inclusive. Um, EJ at the time was called Hooligan Syndicate that was just a spin-off of the Goon Squad name because they wanted to have association with Goon Squad, but they wanted a quieter place where you could actually have a thought and not be spammed with eternal uh, chat spam and weird things. And um, so that was headed up by people like uh, Beef and uh, Zoid and Utnayan and Cowbell and those early, early people. And a lot of people just... As soon as they hit higher levels, early, people who, who hit early levels, high levels early on, like uh, like Chocula uh, and Gurgthok, um, fled Goon Squad um, because they realized it was a it was a silly place that really wasn't actually getting anything anything done. And it's imploded many times over its course, and in, in, at least in vanilla, it imploded several times. And there came an unfortunate time when um, they were were trying to field early raids and. Hooligan Syndicate thought, maybe we can still merge and raid with Goon Squad, and, and oh look, all the people from Shack News um, that rolled um, uh, Horde characters are in giant communist robots, or GCR. A lot of those people wanted to get in on the early raids, and they became this kind of early raiding core 
of people, and it was filled with drama. And um, unfortunately, it went south and uh, it, it, it imploded. And Hooligan Syndicate decided they did no longer want to be associated with the Coon Squad. And I don't know, who, I always forget who came up with the name uh, Elitist Jerks, but it was in response to how the Goon Squad was reacting to the um, now EJ people in terms of rating. Can I back up for a second? Can I ask you two to tell us uh, how you started playing WoW? Um, I used to read SA or something awful a lot, and um, I played a lot of Dota um, on the SA forums, and because I freaking love Dota, and uh, I heard about WoW coming out, and I thought, you know, EverQuest didn't look like anything fun to me. I never played any MMOs before, and I was real hesitant about what I saw from WoW. But the more I looked at it, the more it kind of I thought maybe it could be kind of like a giant sort of Dota experience where I could run around and um, stab elves. And I thought, well, okay, that could be kind of fun. And I got to play the open beta, and that was quite enjoyable. And um, I was playing an undead rogue, of course, so edgy. But then I realized that everyone and their mother would be playing a rogue because how much fun they were. So um, on release, I made an undead warrior, which is actually warriors were terrible at release, just terrible. But they were also a hard counter to rogues. Um, so there was that. And uh, all of my, my Dota friends from SA were also playing, and a lot of them still are. I mean, most of these the early Goon Squad and EJ people I had connections with because we just used to play a lot of Dota. Yeah, for me, I uh, actually played a few MMOs. I played EverQuest, not really. I, I never like. I, I think I got to like level twenty. I had fun, but I was. I just wasn't very good at it. I was like a teenager, didn't have that much time to play. Uh, then I played Camelot, um, Dark Ages of Camelot. Had a good time with that. Um, and then Warcraft came out, and it was just kind of a. In terms of playability, it was just like a huge step above those games. Um, so yeah, that's. Uh, Kind of how I started playing. Um, the reason I ended up playing is an Undead Warrior, and Lode and I both played Undead Warriors. Uh, we never actually knew each other. We just happened to choose that class. I, I just, uh, I had, my first character was a priest, um, but I decided I didn't really want to play a caster. I played a caster in Camelot. Thought I'd try a warrior. Um, I rolled Undead Warrior because I thought having the name Chocula and being an undead anything would be pretty funny. So that's why I'm undead. Uh, and Warrior just, I don't know, I want to play melee. Yeah, that was actually my first character too. So when, when, um, when did, when did, like, when did everybody start doing math in public, um, <laughs> on the Elitist Jerks forums, right? Because the, the there's... The most pressing question. <laughs> well, no, because like, like, it, it, it is in a funny way, but it's also that, um, you can have this kind of like hardcore guild and everything like that and um, have like discussions about playing in a more serious fashion. But at some point, like the math just kind of exploded and everybody was like, well, we're going to figure out all the mechanics behind the game. And it wasn't just like a guild thing. Like it was just thrown open to the public. And I'm interested in like how that started and like why. It's kind of funny that you're asking this question because neither Chalk nor I are really are theory crafters. I mean... As, as yeah. far as I know, the, 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 the kind of the forms exploded at Cthune when the Cthune drama happened, oh, and um, well, but, but it was impossible. And I, I, I still wasn't in EJ at that point, but I was, you know, familiar with it, and I read the forms fairly regularly because I was friends with a lot of people. 
And I remember um, Z's early rant where he took, um, was it Tiggle's rant from EverQuest and just yeah. reworded it for Gafoon. And that was, you know, that whatever that time was, was on the forums more or less exploded because EJ was pretty secretive and quiet um, for rating at least. If you think back to Blackwing Lair, um, for Nefarian attempts, uh, it there was so much unknown and people didn't publish how to videos at you know, nowadays, originally the, the now everything's laid out in strategy. You can press shift J in game and look at, there's like a little built in journal guide of how, what each spell does in this encounter and what you should do to avoid it. We didn't have any of that. Even if, even if there wasn't that like videos left and right of here's our strap doing this, you go here and they draw diagrams. None of that existed. And frankly, um, when Nefarian was just starting to get killed in Blackwing Lair, which was the second big raid encounter in the game, and it, it was killed a lot of guilds because they didn't know how how to go about the encounter. And EJ, I just frankly, you know, was hush hush about it. Yeah, I remember I played. Sorry, I played Alliance on Illidan, um, so we had really big raiding guilds, and I don't. I, I'm trying to remember the name of this guild. Um, I know a couple of my friends who I know will listen to this and tell me, uh, but they had a blacklist policy where if you did anything to anybody in that guild, um, you were blacklisted and they weren't even allowed to talk to you. And if they were found uh, like consorting with blacklisted people, um, they would get kicked out of the guild. And one of the, one of the cardinal sins that you could commit was to leak their strategies because they were one of the top raiding guilds and like they didn't want anybody to know how to clear Blackwing Lair because it was, I don't know, like it's not even competitive, which is the puzzling thing looking back. Like it doesn't matter if it's already cleared and someone else clears it. Like I don't know why people cared so much, but uh, that was such a weird, like thinking about that difference um, with, yeah, like you said, like how common it is to have strategy guides and videos now is one of the weirdest differences to me thinking between then and now. So the one the one place where it did kind of matter was just world bosses, because if you had better gear, you could more reliably kill Kazakh. Yeah, totally. Um, but yeah, in, in general, it, it wasn't like EverQuest. I mean, there there just wasn't that kind of competition where only one, you know, where every boss was a world boss and only one guild could kill them each week. Um, but yeah, I, I kind of think I actually think Nefarian was where the our popularity kind of trended up because um, they're they're just there really were hardly any horde guilds raiding at the time, especially with public websites um, and public forums. I, I think like that's the one time where I think EJ got like a top ten uh, world kill was when he killed Nefarian. Like I think we may have been the first horde guild. Um, I'm, I'm certain we were top five. So I'm interested, uh, I kind of want to balance between early districts, like as an organization in your experience, because I've like dipped in and out, um, of WoW for a really long time, like since I was 16, I guess, which is terrible to think about. Um, and for me, uh, it's so weird that you used to have this diversity of, um, like where races and classes actually mattered right? And you had things like Fear Ward only on a Dwarf Priest. Um, to go from that 
and in ways it was unfair, right? Like the blessing of salvation thing is an example of where it was like a huge difference across a huge number of people. But now everything is so equalized. Um, and I'm not going to say balanced because it's not, but they seem to be trying really hard to eliminate those kind of, of changes of, of that diversity between different ways of playing. Um, and it seems so different from when they started because it seems like they built that stuff in for a reason. So I'm interested in hearing about how that affected, like how you engage with the game. <laughs> well, it affected Chalk because Chalk has a shameful secret about that. Oh, I, I do that. Yeah, let's hear the shameful secret. Yeah, let's get it. What became of Chocula the Undead Warriors about Robot Wrath Time? Was it? Oh yeah, Chocula. Yeah, that that yeah. I did change to an orc for a while. It was not a popular decision. <laughs> I thought it was going to be way more shameful. Chorcula, come on. Chorcula, okay, that's shameful. But yeah, so not- so yeah, or, orc was a much better choice for a while, just because of the uh, uh, orc got a boost to their axe damage. Undead didn't really have anything. We had Will of the Forsaken, which was never as good for a warrior compared to other classes, and it got nerfed repeatedly. They actually. I remember Blizzard actually had a quit reason. If you were quitting, you could choose to say, uh, I'm quitting because of the will of the Forsaken nerf, because I guess so many people are upset about the repeated nerfs. Um, but yeah, uh, I was briefly an orc for the damage upgrade, and that was, I mean, it was fine. People just like me better as an undead, I guess. And I like me better as an undead. The the length of time that the game has, uh, because you know Jocelyn mentioned like the length of the time, does like that ever freak you out? And does it ever? I mean, I mean to me, it's kind of heartening that like Leadstrix is still there in basically the same form, and a lot of the a lot of the same people are still there. I think that's really rad. I mean, personally, I I'm playing again now. I didn't play for a long time. Like I, I came back briefly in Draenor, uh, played Pandora for a while, but I, I guess. Uh, I don't know. I certainly don't play WoW as much as I did ten years ago. It is kind of weird to think of it being that that old, but nah, I, I wouldn't say it freaks me out. Like, is when you play the? I'm trying to get the boys to talk about their feelings. Is what's happening here? Like, what is it like to play the game now when before it was like, to be honest, much more challenging? Like, if I'm gonna put a word on that, like, does it feel like the same game? Eh. I, I mean, not really, but I, I kind of, I, I think a lot of that was also the newness of it. Like, I mean, Molten Core wasn't that hard. It it, it was just a matter of the, both the knowledge and uh, of game mechanics getting to a certain point. Um, and at this point, you really can't bring that back um, in World of Warcraft. Uh, so I, I think, yeah, it definitely feels different, but you well, know, there's not, there's no way around that. Any game that's around for twelve years or whatever is gonna feel a lot different. Think about the um, the quality of life improvements they made in game, and also the ridiculous mechanics that were in place with uh, things like uh, uh, glancing blows and um, getting forty people to do anything, and just all the little ridiculous things where no one knew anything, and you know, no threat uh, guides at all, just nothing. It was, it was, yeah, it was, uh, it was tricky. And it was know, just so much like, unknown back then, and now everything is kind of spoon-fed to you. And it's not, there's certainly, you know, difficult things to do now, but it, there's, there's no more Wild West feel to it. 
for me the fact that um back then like it wasn't like rating wasn't just like you logged in for LFR like it was like you sat down with a whole community that you had to try really hard to join and you had to slog for like five hours three nights a week at least and you had like all of these physical restraints on your machine that made a difference um and then like also everybody was poor so like you got cut off at 20 copper or something on like a wow basic account and like beyond that um nobody had money it just feels like it it wasn't better but for me it was like it was just more complicated and interesting and like we had someone talk about embodiment on this podcast and for me it felt more embodied like it felt like it was part of my life in a way that wow no longer does even though i still spend like a similar amount of time sadly I never really thought of it like like in those in like terms of embodiment where it wasn't just like playing the game it was like the entire lead up right you know where you eat and you sit down and then you're ready and then it's like the sitting there and it's the it's 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 the physical sensations out of the game you know the hearing and everything like that yeah that's interesting but I, um, I never really wanted to associate my real life with hey I'm doing really really well and wow like I remember years ago I was working a job and someone came in and tried to apply with like a, wearing a horde t-shirt and i was like mortified <laughs> yeah and I, yeah. I, I would never never talk about this sort of thing in real life i feel like all internet stuff back then was just so taboo well i mean recently i get this email from blizzard they have this new streaming alpha on their battle.net client and i'm like oh neat okay and it says uh, it's streaming through facebook i'm like ah, nope yeah let me stream my wow stuff through my facebook client and yeah, check uh, it out, everyone know. Jesus Christ. Yeah, I dig. Yeah, I mean, like, you know, the history of the history of WoW is, like, I, I'm kind of surprised that, like, because it's so immediate, you kind of, like, forget it very, very quickly, except, like, in those early days when it was kind of weird and new and everything like that. But it's almost like, it's, it's almost like the history of, like, Web 2.0 and, you know, just not just in terms of, like, the tech, but, like, socially, like, what's acceptable to talk about or to do or anything like that, regardless of whether or not like on an individual basis, we're like, oh no, we're not going to talk about this. Like, you know, it's just it's the the, the discussion around it is very different. Um, and and kind of in those terms, I like I would be remiss if we didn't talk a little bit about um, the forum moderation, because just for background for the listeners, um, what came with you know the the math and the modeling of game mechanics and everything like that were these very strict um, moderation rules. Um, to keep people on topic, right? Like you, if you wanted to talk about the math behind your class or an encounter, you had to, uh, you had to follow rules about don't come in with opinions without math backing it up and all this stuff. And uh, there have actually been like academic papers written about how to communicate information online through that kind of moderation, which is, you know, really, uh, it's, it's crazy to me that elitist jerks where I spent so much time, like, you know, that's, that's done. So I know that you guys did some moderating, um, and you weren't like the harsh moderators, but uh, like, can you tell us a little bit about what, was there like a handbook or was it just basically just do your thing or how was moderation, uh, set up? Basically, I mean, we had, uh, kind of a few points in the moderators forum on, on what to moderate, but personally, I, I was never that hardcore into it, I would just look for fires and someone was spamming or someone was completely out of line. I would, uh, I, I would infract them. Um, but yeah, I, I kinda, I, I was never one of the very hardworking moderators. I, I just kinda 
observed and for for a while yeah uh for a while i was one of the hardworking moderators um essentially early on when the forums got popular we had one moderator and it was cowbell and god only knows why he spent as much time as he did but there was just this one-man army of him handing out bans left and right and um he was getting burned out so boethius the site owner at the time um, approached me, Gilliam, and I cannot remember who the third person was, um, and asked if we would step up and help Cabal out. And um, the only standing rule was just it's it's kind of self-explanatory. Just don't uh, just don't fuck with the benefactors bar, the the, the paid private chat area. And um, mostly, the people would use the report button. And it, they were, God, there were just dozens of them every hour. And I would just go through them, see if it was a valid concern that broke through the very clearly laid out rules that we had. And um, if they did, I would uh, ban them occasionally with a snarky comment and then get death threats. Oh, it's great fun. Yeah, for baby millennials uh, who think that the advent of death threats online is a new phenomenon. Oh, it's been going for years. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It was... <laughs> Yeah. Oh man. Oh yeah. There's just just forums in general. Like I know people don't use them as much as they used to, but it just it really lends they lend themselves to grudges so easily that just stay there forever. It's um, it's funny you mention that because I just I was on my I quit for a long time and I was on my warrior just hanging around a dollar on, and I uh, had there were a couple people that I just did not care for back in the day, and um. I had someone who I haven't seen in forever. I liked the guy. Um, I was on an alt and was like, oh, man, how you doing? And blah, blah, blah. And I was like, hey, good to see you. And he was in some sort of random guild on here. And um, he said, huh, you guess what? Uh, So-and-so's in my guild. And there was this other person that I had, there had been a huge drama queen. And I realized that was eight years ago. And I don't care. I, I do not care. And I was like, it just didn't mean anything to me. Like, they're still holding on to that after eight years. Yeah, I was wondering, like, I'm um, reflecting, listening to y'all talk, and I'm trying to figure out, because I was playing when I was really young, um, and I'm curious to hear, if you think about, like, the long-term impacts and memories that came out of this time, is it is it more, like, did WoW, the game, have a bigger impact on you, or did, like, the community around it have a bigger impact on you in your life? For my parts, community, definitely. I, I I think they're kind of intermixed. Um, I I would say the community, but it's in my brain they're kind of they they kind of occupy the same space. They span throughout all the different games and stuff because I mean obviously this started as a extension of Dota for me, you know the original Warcraft three Dota, and I still know a lot of those people that I was originally playing Warcraft three Dota are still playing this, and. Um, I, it extends throughout other games. I play a lot of Overwatch with people who play a lot of current Dota 2 because, frankly, there's a lot of devs in EJ who went on to different studios, and we've got some Valve people, and so there's a lot of Dota 2 going on and a lot of other stuff, and so and, and Left 4 Dead and all these other things that we do. So it's very much more community-driven for me. Um, let me take us home. Um, 
and ask. So obviously Legion came out, and I really, really like Legion. I think Jocelyn and I may end up talking a little bit about this. Um, and you two guys both um, came back, either came back or are playing more often uh, since Legion came out. What do you think of it? And if you like it or don't like it, why? Um, I, I, I've really been enjoying it. Um, I, I think basically they, they really seem to have kind of honed a lot of the systems. Um, it, it, it's just um, all, all the content is a lot of fun. Um, I, I, I mean, yeah, it's hard to really identify anything. I don't feel as an improvement compared to Draenor. Um, Warlords of Draenor, the last expansion. What about, sorry, uh, what about compared to vanilla? Like, or is it just totally different? I don't think you can compare that. There's just nothing that compares vanilla anymore. It's, there was, someone made this, this uh, quote on the EJ forums long ago, and it was um, something about, like, people are going to burn out from WoW and spend the next 10 years of their life looking for another vanilla that'll never happen. Yeah, I don't know. I... I kind of I, I could see people saying the same thing about like the early days of Ultima Online or EverQuest. Um, it's just that there's there's so much, you know, a lot of the fun of playing the big MMO like this is just the initial discovery, and once that's gone, there's no real getting it back. Yeah, I mean, is it like why do you think people want that? Is it just nostalgia? Um, do you think it's achievable again, or is it just a dream? I think it's achievable going in, but probably not by the same game. Um, I, I'm sure there will be other MMOs, um, but it's you know it's 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 hard to play the same game for ten, fifteen years and not get you know and still have the same sense of uh, newness. I, I just don't think they can recapture the original vanilla thing again. I don't because it was so unknown, and so now there's so much that is known and experienced. It would have to be either a new genre or an entirely new thing where we can have another Wild West because there's, I, I just don't see it happening. Do you think it should? Yeah, I definitely do. I think there's always a, a great, you know, like, think about when, when new things came out, like Dota came out. I mean, that was a whole new thing that, and uh, that is Wild West and, and, and giving you a place to, to work and have a job because it's a very... It's a huge company you work for that makes a very successful Dota clone. And um, <laughs> it is. It, yeah. Um, and there's uh, Warcraft 3 gave direct birth to not only Dota, but also all tower defense games. Everyone playing Plants vs. Zombies and all those kind of things is a direct result of this sort of you know, creativity that has sparked in a whole new direction. And I look forward to whatever the next new kind of interesting wild west thing is if it's vr sure maybe i don't know um or if it's just a new type of simulation that hasn't been done before and it, and it opens people's eyes to something new and, and exciting and spawns a whole uh wave of creativity i think that's just wonderful yeah and i mean even you know even vanilla well you know you had old like everquest players old ultimate online players who you know to them wow was pretty it was fun, but it, I wouldn't say Wild West because, you know, those older games had, had much, you know, much harsher mechanics, much more uh, player freedom compared to WoW. Um, 
I, I mean, I think it's kind of a spectrum. It's, it's all relative compared to things you played before. But WoW was ex like it, it. Yes, uh, EverQuest and and Star Wars Online and all those kind of things were um, around. But WoW had the sheer kind of popular. It, it skyrocketed into to mainstream because yeah, WoW, they, WoW was much more playable well. than those games. They made it really accessible. So, in the same sense that Dota is the original, and then League is the more kind of accessible, popular version that took the media by storm. That you could draw parallels there, I'm sure. So one of the reasons that we wanted to have y'all on, besides you being awesome and EJ being a really big deal, is um, I think Ian and I both said that you know WoW is is probably one of or the most influential game uh, that came out maybe ever video game wise, but like at least of the last you know several decades. So it sounds like um, with your comment about the wave of creativity. Uh, you're on board with that, but I'm interested if you agree. You think WoW is more uh, influential than Halo? Yes. I don't even have to hesitate. Yeah, absolutely. Because because uh, so like it's it was so wildly like like we're kind of on the downward swing of it, right? But like it's so obviously um, it's it's penetrated so many different genres. Like it it, it even. I know MMOs existed before that, but like there was a gold rush in the wake of WoW. Like there were com there are companies that would not be in existence now if it wasn't for people wanting to get in on the WoW thing. Literally uh, the, gold rush because an entire yeah. economy popped up uh, in real life in China. Yeah, I mean there were Toyota commercials during the Super Bowl. There were um, oh, yeah, they used Mr. T. It was terrible. Yeah, they were. Yeah, there was there was, there was Mr. T. There was a Toyota commercial. Yeah, but I also um, read a book about the entire gold farming economy. Yes, there's, there's so there a was gold... that, and then books about it. What about you, Chocula? You think WoW is the most influential game of the 20th century, or whatever? 21st. Mm. That's I, I think I think in terms of money spent trying to replicate it, probably. Uh, I don't know. I it's it's hard to really quantify something like that. Um, but yeah, it wouldn't surprise me. I, I, you know, I, you really think more than Halo because that was the launch title for the Xbox, which is the base, the backbone of success for that console, which has spawned numerous iterations of itself. And yeah, I, I, mean, I so untold money for Microsoft and development and all that. Yeah, to be honest, from talking to people in real life, and you know, I, I would say probably. Halo or Smash Brothers are on par with Warcraft. Um, but, like I said, it's hard to quantify. No, it's not, because it obviously is. Well, here, I think what's happening is that uh, the, the we're talking about value and influence in a couple of different ways, because financially, I don't know if WoW has made the most money out of any game, but I think what Ian is thinking... Um, it has more to do with like cultural cachet in terms of yeah. the number of people who started playing games because of it, in terms of it being a freaking South Park episode, which is like maybe the saddest but most accurate way to measure cultural influence in the early 2000s. Stuff like that that, um, I mean, Halo is popular and it made Microsoft a bunch of money and console games don't count anyway, so we can just discard it. But like, Halo was on PC though. Yeah, I mean, I'm kidding around, but like, I think that um, maybe we're talking about influential and most important in different ways, basically. 
Yeah, I think it's a fair argument. I, I, I can definitely see see what you're saying. Um, yeah, I mean, I definitely agree with that. I just I, I think about I think about like like little things where Wow's idea of um, and I know it I knew it was initially kind of like a knockoff of like D two, um, but like those original talent trees just show up in like single player games, right? And have for a decade now. And also or, the UI has been replicated in yeah, every MMO. It's ever just made, it's, right? it's 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 these little things that you just kind of like take for granted about the way video games look are presented and work. The that, idea of LFR yeah. was presented in WoW and then appeared in every other MMO after it, like especially Final Fantasy XIV, right? Like stuff like that. I mean, I kind of you know something like that. It's I think it's kind of a no-brainer. It's just I think it was so hard to implement early on. Like I remember Star Wars when it came out. Maybe I'm remembering wrong. I don't think they had an LFR system. Um, at least one major game, a couple of major games, everyone was kind of begging for an LFR system at launch and it just wasn't there. Um, like, I, I think that's yeah. something that's difficult to implement correctly. Um, WoW just happened to have the talented programmers who were able to make it work first. Yeah, I think there's a, to use like a um, an academic phrase, sorry, forgive me. Um, so like there's an idea that, that things happen whenever the conditions of possibility become right. And so I think that you're right, that we were in gaming at the right historical moment for that kind of thing to come because people wanted it. Um, but like the final piece of the puzzle, besides the tech being available, besides the desire, besides games getting big, was like whatever happened at Blizzard was like what happened at Xerox Park in the 80s or something. Like, wow, for some ineffable reason was the game that brought all that into being before the other games did. And I don't know how to nail that down or even if we should try. Yeah. I, th I think, I mean, I think kind of Blizzard took on the product project and just really knocked it out of the park. Um, I mean, you know, they, they were in a very good place at a very good time to really dominate the market. Well, um, do we want to wrap it there? We've gone on for about an hour, which I think is about where we need to go. Sorry, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> okay, cool. Well, thanks so much for being with us, um, Morgan and Luke. Um, this was this was really neat conversation. We probably could have talked about God, wow, which is so big for just hours. So um, we'll talk about it after we stop recording. Yeah, we'll, yeah, we'll just do some more. But thanks for uh, <laughs> thanks for being with us. Thanks for having yeah, me. Thanks for having yeah, us. Thank you. All right. Later. Yeah. So, like in the middle of that, someone like started messaging me that needed crafted stuff. So I'm trying to craft demon steel stirrups for this guy. Oh my god! You should have said something. <laughs> That's all right. We can put this into the like. We can cut that back in. Welcome. To Chris's Porn Corner. I'm not super jazzed about the name, but that's the one that stuck with everybody. Um, Chris's, Chris's Dark Porn Dungeon. This is a lighthearted <laughs> porn corner. We, let, we open up all the windows, let everyone look in. Ugh. This, no, this close has them. been brewing. I'm gonna get arrested. In our uh, podcast uh, co hosts, but with us co hosts since uh, episode one. <laughs> Where, as part of my uh, Overwatch research, I found, through my friend Adrian, who encountered it in-game, 
uh, a subset of uh, Overwatch players who had a very specific like uh, sexual practice in the game, and we decided we would kind of expand that out to have everyone bring uh, a different kind of like video game related pornography to the table, and we kind of discuss how they intersect uh, sexuality in uh, games, which is usually something that's kind of, um, I don't know the right word, it's kind of like passed off or brushed off, it's just like, oh, gamers will sexualize anything, and they don't give a lot of thought to it, so I kind of wanted to have a place where we dig in a little bit. Not to get too blue. Uh, <laughs> wow, that, but... that made it sound like this was going to be like a, a pretty adventurous corner. Just dig in. Yeah, just dig, dig in, in a little bit. Just dig into the corner. Um, but oh, we're going to have oh. a good time. Imagine but, the carpet gonna, in the corner. Gonna, this oh. is Rimworld. <laughs> I'm going to try to keep it. I'm kind of uh, conducting this porn corner, and I'm going to try to keep it good. And I'm also editing this porn corner, which is the important thing. And I'll make it good. So, Chris, uh, you have all the porn. You have the porn knowledge. What porn would you like to start with? I feel like I want to start with the one that inspired the porn corner to begin with. I think that's a good place for me to start. um, And we can kind of see what the temperature is after that. Um, (laughs) Hot. Yeah. Very hot. Very hot. So, so, So the weird thing about this whole thing is you might think this is a really weird niche thing to be doing but actually we're we've been scooped by kotaku on uh, our first porn i saw is, that uh, which is heel sluts uh it's an overwatch uh, sub community and uh, we already talked about overwatch in one of our earlier episodes but just to recap how the game works it's a team based it's a class-based shooter uh people have different roles like in an mmo and um you have two teams of i think it's 6v6 it might be 8v8 uh play against each other i haven't played overwatch in a bit um Notably, there are two roles, uh, tank, which is kind of someone who soaks up a lot of damage and kind of distracts the enemy so the, like the, the squishier characters can go and do their thing. And there's healers who heal their teammates. Uh, heal sluts kind of take a dom-sub relationship and apply it to those class things where the tank is the dom and the sub is the healer tank me daddy yeah it's a it's a sexualized way of just you doing your normal class role though when uh adrian my friend encountered in game the healer would not heal him and would only heal her daddy tank so some people (laughs) take it kind of narrowly and i think that's an interesting thing too where uh they um they go like they're getting like this pleasure out of subverting how you're supposed to be doing the healing role which is kind of like spreading health throughout your entire team and like focusing on the just the tank um, I think that's a pretty interesting aspect of it. So how did, how did, can we, I, I love Adrian, by the way. I know Adrian. Hey, Adrian. Um, so how did, how did Adrian um, know that that was what was going on? Like, were they talking about it? That's a good question. I never asked him about it. I think he like complained in chat and the, uh, the heel slut in question, like, I only heal my daddy. And then I think he might've done some amateur research on his own before he got back to me about what it was. I dug into it a little bit. Yeah, we should have had him on. He's the the eyewitness. (laughs) Um, There's a Reddit for heel sluts. um, Reddit slash r slash heel sluts if you're interested in it. Um, So I did some digging there. And I guess one of the things I really think is interesting about it is kind of how it's a... It kind of is situated in kind of a pseudo-anonymous way where you're online and no one knows who you really are, but they do know what your usernames are. And you're kind of performing this sexual act, not in private, but not in public either. It's kind of a, a very limited and constrained way to do it. 
And I think that's a really fascinating thing about this. And you don't see that with a lot of like sexual practice. It's kind of either super voyeuristic or it's private. I'm on the Reddit now. Wow. This is, uh, it's a hell of a place. This is fascinating. Honestly, like, like there's, wow. I, so it's not just the healers who are like the subs. There's actually quote unquote tank sluts, which is people who are doing the tanking, but are putting themselves in the sub role and having the, the healer be the dom. Um, so there's some like there's people who do sw- are switches too who do both, um, but uh, yeah the idea so it's not just clearly like mapped onto something like women are subservient and are healers thing. There's a little bit more. I don't. I mean, Overwatch's characters are structured that way, but there's a little more nuance in how the heal slip community engages with that stuff. Hmm. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. No. I. I mean, that's like that's like legitimately interesting. It's not my kink, but we've all got kinks. So whatever. You know. And we're going to work them out on the porn corner. <laughs> <laughs> the porn dungeon. Ugh. Please. I really don't like it being a dungeon. Chris's really... sex bucket. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> Downside. I like that. That's that's what it's called now. <laughs> Tub 11. No, the bucket. God, I had All something right. else interesting about heel sluts, but I, I forget. And I want to have time for everyone. So. Alright, so what's next? What's next in the bucket? Let's, okay, let me let me fish around in there. Put another penny in the bucket. You know what? I think what's this? Is it Bowser Koopa, the King of Koopas? Oh Lord! Oh my God! Here we go. This is fascinating. Uh, Trev, stuff, can man. you explain how this? Uh, I can. Bowser Koopa ended up in the sex bucket. <laughs> so I got when I was when I got my assignment for this for the bucket. Um, I Please. I started I started wondering about like classic images, right? And like I thought, well, you know, let's like just think about sort of the most classic video game uh pornography you could imagine, and that's like, you know, Mario, right? Um and so I was I was kinda interested in seeing what would come up with um the villain in Mario, aka Bowser. So if you wanna follow along with me, you can look in your uh the easy Google is Bowser porn. And it's real weird. Uh, I can see you put two- a lot of work into this. Movie. Yeah, some of us did some research. I for didn't. This I didn't do any research, but <laughs> I found something interesting in my initial research, which is that a lot environmental <laughs> A lot of this. A lot of this. Um, a lot of this stuff is what you'd expect, right? Like, um, a lot of the sort of like the two things you'd expect in this would be like, um, the the bowser mario relationship right which is kind of a classic thing you sort of like hero and villain and generally in sort of like queer spaces um same-sex heroes and villains or same gender heroes and villains are 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 shipped together and that's not like totally surprising um the other thing that's not surprising Mm -hmm. is the the sort of like bowser peach um connection because she's the only woman in the game right um and he does capture her right yeah let me let me put this on pause is there Bowser, Mario, and Pregnant. Uh, I'm sure there is. Oh, I'm sure there is. I didn't. Awesome. I didn't look, but yes, I'm. I'm almost positive there would be. Oh. All right. I, there, was I mean, there's. Curious. Yeah. yeah I found. A, I found a picture. Reasons. I found a picture of pregnant. Bowser, See, there you go. So. That was fast. Yeah, it's not. It's not going to take long. Um. Here's the thing that sort of surprised me. Um. There's a lot on here of just sort of um, Bowser as kind of like this strange uh masculine ideal either muscular or actually a lot more like sort of chubby and just nude which of course like anthropomorphized and all that so because people are are using this to sort of like they're they're sexualizing bowser it's not just like a picture of him from the game but like it's it's funny because it's like it's not 
it's not what I'd expect. It, it, I was saying to Chris, it's sort of like, I'm not, I'm not sure if this is like a thing, but like in some ways it sort of reminds me of like, you know, what people talk about with bears. Uh, and I don't know if that's even a thing in, in sort of like gay porn at this point, but like, you know, the idea of sort of like a, a, a larger man or like a, a more sort of like um, a less like ideal masculine form uh, and more of sort of like a dad form or something like that. It's very strange. I just found it so interesting that this was the way it was taken, right? Where like you're so used to seeing particular ways that um, sexualizing of, of uh, you know, original uh, intellectual properties are taken where like generally it's, you know, relationships between characters or um, sexualization of women characters or relationships between men and women in the, in the thing, regardless of who they are. Right. Um, and in this case, it's like, it's like this image of like a character that is not at all like sexualized in the games, but like, you know, in positions where it's like, it's, it's this weird sort of like sensuality. And I, I just didn't expect it. And I don't know, really know what to make of it, but it, it kind of took me off guard. Yeah, I can see that. But it it is true that in the Bowser porn, it does seem like they they can't let him stick with his traditional like body shape. Oh no, not like usually. It, it, yeah, like, is it is like yeah, it does change. But though I guess the chubby version, the like the chubby dad version, is closest to like normal Bowser, I guess. Like, but the super muscular version is definitely um, yeah far afield from how you would like normally expect him to be. it's true and i mean i regret googling bowser yeah no me too but i did it and so i had some thoughts um, but like no i am looking at it right now spyro oh god yeah listen as as a chubby nude guy um i i i really uh i really feel kinship for bowser and uh i hope he's sexually satisfied he looks like it he looks he looks like he looks like <laughs> looks it. like he is doing here's fine. one thing too <laughs> He does have a, mam- a mammalian penis, yeah, and that's something that I find interesting about this kind of stuff too. Well, so that's what I meant he by didn't give him like a turtle's a turtle's. Penis. Well, that's what I meant by anthropomorphized. Like it's definitely, yeah. I don't know. They have like they have like a. I don't. I'm know. sure Hold it's. On. I'm sure turtle it's penis. not the same. Turtle penis. Thanks, Chris. No, yeah, no. It's definitely no. Oh God, no, no, no. <laughs> well. Time. This is a porn segment, but I cannot look at turtle penises. Apparently, <laughs> oh my god, it looks like a mushroom fell out Chris. of them. Chris. <laughs> they have like a a flail. It's like a. Oh, that's rough. Are you guys looking at it too? No, I am. Yes. No, I didn't Google turtle penises. It's it's a. It's a little rough. This is a little bit rough. All right, I think got, we're off Bowser Koopa, but thank you. Chad. You're welcome. <laughs> this actually, I mean, you know, obviously you are taking this seriously, but uh, <laughs> uh, no, I just, yeah, I just think it's interesting. I think it's strange. Um, I don't, I don't really understand if this is. I guess my question for future buckets would be: uh, Is this sort of like a tendency in um, in video game pornography or is this just for this particular is it just mario like does this happen a lot if i if i had to guess i think this is maybe something more along the lines of interrogating the furry community about. oh okay yeah yeah those sensibilities are being mapped onto oh that makes sense sure 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 sure. oh that's interesting okay yeah yeah though he definitely he definitely uh, like skirts the line between furry and yeah he's he's a weird thing because he's not he's not real animal just just very quickly like <laughs> just very just very quickly scanning the like Bowser porn um 
I, I caught a picture of, uh, of a furry wolf, uh, fucking him. So, uh, you know, they, they, there goes your overlap right in there. In the porn corner, uh, we prefer making love as the, uh, as the word of choice <laughs> of describing that action. He Ian, was, thank you. He was, he, he, he was getting fucked by a wolf. So, um, I'm going to spin around. Oh, what's this in the corner? Do my eyes oh, deceive me? It? It's a whole game. A second life clone just for having sex in. Jocelyn, can you explain this? How did this end That's up correct. here in the corner? <laughs> uh, I put it there, Chris. Oh, wonderful. Yeah. Thank you. Thank good. you. Is it like a Christmas okay. tree type thing? It is. I come down um, on Porn Corner Morning. So, uh, so the game that I am interested in is called Red Light Center. And I discovered Red Light Center. Um, it came out in 2006. I discovered it in 2006 as a frisky 18-year-old who was Googling things on the internet. And I was like, weird, a video game dedicated to having sex. Amazing. Um, so anyway, I thought I would return to it. And it turns out it's still active and happening. And apparently in 2008, they had a user base of 1.5 million. I have no idea what it is now. Um, maybe there's like three sad people on Red Light Center. Anyway, so the premise of Red Light Center is um, pretty interesting, actually, because the point is a Second Life clone that's dedicated to sex, but there's a whole bunch of other stuff that happens in it, too. So, for example, um, you can only have sex if you buy a VIP membership, which is 20 bucks a month, but you can sort of wander around and, like, what the VIP gets you is, like, shitty 3D modeled sex, um, and it's really interesting because this is a community-moderated uh, MMO, basically. Um, it's a community-moderated uh, group. So what that means is that um, moderation happens from within the community, and that includes sex workers. So you can oh. actually be a registered sex worker in Red Light Center and offer services to people um, and let them have 3D-modeled sex, uh, possibly with voice, in the comfort of your own fake home. Um, and then beyond that, there's like, but there's also like classes of people like guides and um, greeters who basically introduce new people and take them around to party and stuff. So you can go to like nightclubs and stuff, but also there's like a fully modeled version of Vancouver in Red Light Center where you can wander around and go to art galleries. And also they have like book festivals and landmarks. So they have like, you can go on dates in the sex game. Um, so what's what I'm interested generally in the concept of simulation porn. So like you can you can look on like a, your average ass porn site like fantastic.cc or PornTube or whatever you like. And um, you can find like 3D modeled simulation porn. There's also a history of like simulation, like nude Sims mods and stuff, yeah, um, stuff definitely. like that. But this is a whole... This is like taking it to another level, um, but it's not that popular. And so I'm kind of interested in that and like what niche this is serving. And also the fact right. that it becomes like a whole community. Um, and I have not logged into it recently to see how active it is, which is my bad. But I didn't sure. want to pay $20. So <laughs> One of the main things I think that is interesting about Red Light Center is that it's offering things for a premium that you can get from Second Life for free. And I, and I wonder if that has something to do with the smaller user base, if that it's something beyond, like, it's not that uh, what you're getting is unique, it's that the the people you're doing it with are important. So that would, like, slant it towards having a more 
as like a niche community versus second life anything goes mentality yeah and the fact that they're still maintaining the 20 dollar cost suggests yeah. to me that someone's paying it right? right like someone is paying to keep that game active um yeah. so i don't know it's it's a black box to me can you like tell us something about when you first doing it like things you actually saw in the game yeah so i logged in and if you don't pay money you uh um so you download a client. If you don't pay money, you have to use like a base model. Like you can't super customize your character. If you pay money, you can super customize your character. So I kind of logged into the middle of like a plaza and like with no context or anything. I was just sort of wandering around as a female character. And I like wandered into a strip club and there were like super janky models of girls doing shitty stripper moves and like a bunch of gross guys hanging around watching them like slash dance or whatever so it's mostly like world of warcraft um where someone once offered me to slash like five gold to slash dance as a female troll <laughs> um and uh and then i wandered out of there and i kind of like i think i just wandered into like i think i did a <laughs> oh my god no here's what happened i was wandering and there was a beach and i was like i like beaches um so i went to the beach and there were all these houses that had like i think they had like glass walls and there were like some people like totally doing it in the glass walls i'm pretty sure this is what happened and like i was just like whoa there's people doing it in there um but i didn't like participate in it in any way i was just like creepily hanging out staring through the window i think that's what happened i don't remember for sure. there was a but i don't remember doing that in real life so it probably was <laughs> or a dream <laughs> There was a there was an SVU about this. It, yeah, there totally yeah, was. The, yeah. Oh my god! Yeah, they right. like they like tracked down this guy who was like a real creeper, like he dressed like a an undertaker or something like that. Yeah, yeah, it was it was definitely. I'm realizing now I didn't know this when I watched it, but it's definitely about this particular thing. I actually I watched all of SVU different like recently, and I think that that's what made me think about. Oh, this there you again. go. <laughs> like, <laughs> right there with you. Right there with you. I guess I guess what's really interesting to me is that I think a lot of porn is like escapist. Um, like oh, of course. Like uh, even like even just watching porn, like a lot of dudes watch lesbian porn or whatever. But also like everybody's like idealized and like they're doing ridiculous things that you wouldn't necessarily do in real life. Um, this is like let's simulate the most mundane parts of sex. Like let's just like the shitty, gross strip clubs and like just doing it on a bed at night like all of the most like inane like boring things about sex is what this game simulates like you can do some like more exotic things but at the end of the day this game is about like normal ass sex so like that's puzzling to me hmm. i guess well for some people that's can still be escapist i guess yeah it probably. can be very like uh very strange indeed for point. some <laughs> Not me. I don't know if I want this to be the note we end Red Light Center section on. It's like, people who are doing this probably just don't even have normal sex, so that's why they do it. I don't think that's true, though. Yeah. Like, I don't think it I is I don't either. actually think that's true. Like, I don't, I, I cannot, like, this doesn't really have an appeal for me, especially sure. at my advanced age. Um, and, <laughs> like, as opposed to when I was 18 and, like, curious. Sure. Um, like, it doesn't really have an appeal for me, and I... I don't think that the only people interested in it are people who don't have sex. Like, but I, I don't know who it appeals to. Like, if I had the time and, and energy, I would like literally make an account and do like fake anthropology and like just pick a guy up and be like, "So, what got you into this?" Like, <laughs> sure. 
Um, but I, that feels kind of creepy and um, little, yeah. Also, like, also, I don't want to. I don't want to have to talk to the guys who want to have sex in the game. Anyway, um, yeah, I don't know. It's it's like a mystery to me. I think maybe I should like go like for myself or for like an update on the next podcast. Go look and see if there are like forums or something. Yeah, that would be where cool. people talk about this thing. Um, but just even as like an artifact that exists and has existed for eight years, I find it really fascinating. Yeah. Eight, eight years? 2006 yeah. till now would be 10 no. years. 10 years. Jesus Christ. It's okay. a long time. Right. Yeah. I would definitely be interested in you checking back in and seeing how it's changed because it must have like tried to stay with the times in some way. And so I'm wondering how that, how that is or if it is or if it hasn't, that's even more impressive if they stuck with their base model so strictly through all this time. Yeah. Well, That's what I got. What's this in the porn corner? What? There's more? Do my eyes deceive me? One Reach more? Into the bucket. Ah, please, I'm trying to get away from this bucket metaphor. Um, I see a, I see a logo. I have to Google what this logo looks like so I can describe it. <laughs> it looks like a, uh, oh boy, images. Oh, this is boring. Never mind. It's two words and they say games workshop. How did this get in here? <laughs> Well, I have. Uh... <laughs> so, so I'm going to preface this with saying that, like, I'm 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 bad at finding weird porn, right? Like, but uh, I don't did sell find... yourself short, Ian. I did, I did, I did find some weird porn. So I've I've recently the Games Workshop for the uninitiated is uh, a, pr- primarily a miniatures war game, uh, a huge deal. They make Warhammer and they make Warhammer Forty Thousand. Um, and I've recently like rediscovered my lifelong ob- obsession with them after, after about 15 years away. Uh, so I've been like painting miniatures and stuff like that and playing lots of like games workshop, uh, video games because they license out video games too. So that's where the crossover goes. Um, and, uh, so like I decided to find some games workshop form and I found some. Now, the important thing to understand is that like, uh, Games Workshop didn't invent, but like they maybe were like at the cresting, uh, the cresting edge of the dark and edgy fantasy and sci-fi that has kind of like taken over uh, uh, the uh, the public discourse. Um, sure. And so you're talking uh, like late '90s dark sci-fi stuff or '80s. Um, oh like, no, what no, era no. we're talking. They started in the '80s. They're, they they kind of okay. have like this weird like uh, British new wave of heavy metal. Uh, Got it. Okay, that definitely on... clarifies things. Yeah, it's kind of like it's kind of like a Judas Priest Iron Maiden version of like sci-fi and fantasy. Cool. Right? It's like. Yeah, it's yeah, kind of like definitely it, cool. Yeah. yeah, it's kind of like class conscious, but also like incredibly ridiculous, right? So, um, you know, that got just like me. Yeah. All right. So uh, you're dealing with some like sexualized imagery and a lot of this stuff anyway. Right. So um, sure. primarily their, their most popular game is Warhammer 40,000. And that's where I started looking for the porn. And this is like, a, uh, you know, a dark uh, if, if, if you've heard the word grimdark, that was originally used in, in relation to uh, uh, the Warhammer 40,000. <laughs> oh, like, man. Illustrious. <laughs> Yeah, right. Um, so most of the porn, it basically falls under two categories. Okay. One is the really expected, right? Which is Slanesh and Sisters of Battle porn. Okay. Slanesh is, is basically the dark god of pleasure. He's like the sadomasochistic, uh, hermaphroditic god whose followers are like, uh, hermaphroditic, uh, demons, right? Like tending, trending more towards, uh, the feminine than the masculine, right? They have, they have one breast and, uh, you know, um, 
uh, creamy, enticing thighs and uh, big claws, so like they'll like entice people and you know bring them. Oh, in. baby! Yeah, uh, sisters of battle are kind of like these like scantily, like not super scantily clad, but like should we say like form fitting armor uh, clad sci fi battle nuns. So with the porn with them, it's really like exactly what you would expect, right? It's like slaneshi demons fucking or getting fucked, and then like sisters of battle, like. You know, a lot of lesbian uh, overtones and stuff like that. Um, the place where it gets, uh, shall we say, uh, a little more uh, uncomfortable is porn related to the Tyranids. Now, the Tyranids are this race of aliens uh, in the fiction who have invaded the Milky Way galaxy um, in order to basically devour it, right? So, like, they're, they're like two-thirds starship troopers aliens and, like, one-third... Uh, uh, kind of like HR Giger stuff. And um, so there's like a lot of like um, smooth appendages and tentacles and stuff like that. And you can totally see where this is going. Right? Oh, of course. Um, so they basically like in the fiction, they don't have a mind. They're, they're, they're like slaves to the hive mind, right? Which is like the, this, this kind of like uh, all, all mind that over that that controls them right that's like the collective consciousness of the uh of the uh, uh of, of the tyranid race so like all the born is really rapey and gross right it's like and i mean we're talking about some like honestly some pretty extreme stuff if you kind of like poke around at the margins um which would make like japanese hentai it's very hentai flavored um which is perhaps which is which is perhaps worthy of comment because warhammer warhammer and warhammer 40,000 are not really like japanese influenced right like like at all i think that like what i most wanted to comment on was less about this if i can continue my soliloquy um (laughs) so like when i wrote my first jacobin piece it was about geek culture and about how like geek culture really isn't about what people like but how they interact with it right where it becomes this kind of like uh it, it starts mediating aspects of your life that it wouldn't ordinarily do and one of the things i linked to in that there's this there's this there's this webcomic called Our Valued Customers, okay? And it's made by this guy who works at a comic book shop, and he will just draw... They're all one panel, and it's each one is a drawing of a customer saying something that he overheard. It's a great comic. Right, to like, it's, 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 it's really, really good. good. And the one that stuck with me for, like, seven years at this point is one where it's just a dude, and the the writer overheard him say to someone else i don't think i could ever have sex with somebody that wasn't into doctor who right like that's the oh. one that stuck with me and i'm hurt what i think that I'm you're wounded what i think that, <laughs> what i think that you're seeing with all of this right and i and, and, and if we do future episodes of this right like i like i think that you'll see with 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 those too is that you're seeing capitalism um filter down and start to regiment even like the most private parts of our lives where pop culture is essentially um determining like our sexual proclivities to some extent right and that is an independent value judgment from what those are right like i legitimately don't give a shit if you are whacking it to bowser porn right like i really don't care in in any kind of world it's not mine but you do you right but um, you know, not to get like, not to get too like Frankfurt school or uh, <laughs> like that, but like, don't get too Frankfurt school in the last five minutes of the podcast, Ian. Just okay, don't I do won't. it. But oh, I, for God's sake, 
I just <laughs> <laughs> I discovered he, said he was gonna do this. I'm letting I dis- him do it. I discovered it's much to my chagrin that like that like Jocelyn legitimately hates like 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 my favorite Marxist philosophers. <laughs> so, so 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 this is okay. I like um, them, but I don't want you to do it. <laughs> No, 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 no. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going to go hardcore or anything like that. These are kind of ways of like, uh, uh, capitalism and pop culture, like, you know, created by it, um, are filtering into our sex lives, right? And I think that that's, you know, kind of worthy of examination, right? Like, so like, if you have a thing for rapey porn, that's problematic. But there's also this other layer where it's not just rapey porn, it's rapey porn that's kind of like put out there and is kind of, Filtering, filtering into your sexual proclivities at the behest of, you know, the marketing of a big corporation like Games Workshop, right? Mm. So I think some people would argue that rapey porn is not necessarily problematic. Okay, uh, I mean, I'm speaking loosely here, right? Like, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm not. So, so the stuff that I don't mean to rain on your Frankfurt school. No, 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 no. It's okay. So, like, I, um, I don't, I, I don't really care much. Uh, whether somebody uh, gets off on like consensual uh, consensual role play in that vein or anything like that, um, I do have to wonder um, uh, sometimes about some artwork, right? Where um, in this instance, um, at least the subject is not being portrayed as it being like a consensual role play kind of thing. Does that make sense? I think that, um, and this goes far beyond the scope of video games, and we might not need it in this podcast. I think when it comes to porn and sex in general, we have to be careful because trauma is so often tied up in sex and also porn. And the problem um, is that it's impossible to distinguish when trauma is and is not caught up in porn. So, for example, a lot of people who watch rape porn are actually rape victims um, and who participate in non-consensual role play are rape victims who are processing their trauma in a way that's safe and controlled. Hmm. Um, and so they're able to process their trauma in a situation that they have control over. In the same way, you might have someone producing art who isn't a trauma victim that's super gross, but you might have trauma victims who look at that as a way of controlling their situation. Um, and so I think that it's 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 like I agree that the way that um, capital is involved in our sex lives is like weird and complicated and often bad in the case of non-consensual stuff and other stuff that depicts like traumatic things. um, I think that people are processing stuff often that make it a little bit more nuanced than rape porn is problematic. And I'm not saying that rape porn is good. Um, I just want to throw out there that it's often like a more complicated idea than that. That's fair. Let me let me rephrase then. Um, I'm cautious about it, right? Yeah. Which which I think is probably a more accurate and and, and fair way of putting it, right? I mean, which it's I also totally true that, for example, like BDSM and Dom sub stuff is not always necessarily bad. Oh yeah. But there are ways that people practice it that it's really unsafe. And in the same way, porn isn't necessarily bad. Um, but there are ethical and non-ethical porn industry practices. Yes. Um, and those have very real effects on the world around us. Yeah. Well, I, I, sorry, I got so a little a, da- a dour emotional. a dour end to Chris's porn corner. Wait, I have. I'm going to bring it around because I know I have a fun <laughs> anecdote about the history of tentacle porn, and okay. I want to bring it Ooh. up because I knew you're going to talk Please. about tentacles. Tentacle porn comes from um, in post World War II Japan. 
Uh, Americans who were occupying Japan put really strict censorship rules on what you could depict, including penises in vagina sex. So uh, tentacle porn is a way of getting around that restriction cleverly by replacing the penises in question with tentacles. It's a uh, it's a like a just like sub- subverting an embargo. It was the genesis of that whole subculture, which is now like a cultural thing. But at the time, it was just a way of being able to produce pornography under the uh, sanctions put in by the U.S. occupying. Well, that's groups. really interesting. So, that's wild. And if you're interested in league related tentacle porn, just Google Velkaz. <laughs> Enjoy. <laughs> I don't think I want to, Jocelyn. Jocelyn, Jocelyn, thank you so much. Thank you so much for that. Thank you so, thank Trev, you so much. Trev, absolutely. No. Thanks everybody yeah. so much. What a and, wonderful, what uh, a wonderful bucket. Yeah, so let's wrap up the podcast. Well, thanks everyone for listening. This was a. Uh, we need to come yeah. up with the theme if, of if the you're, episode. If you're, if you're still listening, I, isn't so isn't the theme of the episode um, uh, oppression versus consent? Didn't we deal with that in both issues? Well, I don't know about this interview. Oh, yeah, had, that's... So. Yeah, maybe not. This you know what I think? One. You know what I think? The Hold on, I can do this. I think that... I think that the theme of this episode is what it means to be uh, someone who plays games and how it affects you in real life and how you play out your needs and desires in um, a game space. And in the case of uh, the elitist jerks interview, um, we heard from people who really changed the face of what it meant to play MMOs, right? Because they created all the number crunchy stuff um, and they really changed what it was to, to play the game. Um, in the case of RimWorld, we heard about how um, not only is it kind of a stressful process to play the game and experience being in that game. We also heard about some of the, sort of implicit or maybe explicit, we don't know, um, biases and real world things coded into it. And in the case of porn, like obviously um, it's it's like in some ways, and I don't want to just let me stress, I don't want to diss um, porn as a way to interact with media because I think it's really interesting. And it's also like one of the richest sites for people like thinking yeah. about and playing around with concepts from different kinds of media. That's absolutely true. Games. Yeah. Yeah. So I think the theme of this episode is like, we all interact with games um, and experience them uh, differently. And um, it can be weird and fucked up and strange and it can have like a huge impact on um, us and other people. Great. That's a really solid one. You did a really good job. You should do it every time. Hey, I did a good job last time, man. This is terrible. Yeah. I think I, I think I, I think I did the best job. Of I would disagree. Um, all right. Well, thanks for <laughs> thanks for welcome to the game guard. Oh, we should all say our Twitter handle. Oh yeah, um, I'll go last again. Go ahead, Jocelyn. Uh, so my Twitter handle has changed. I am now Gul Dushat. That's D E U X C H A T S. I'm Chris Carrick. I'm at F F U O K on Twitter. Check and... me out. <laughs> And I am at Brock underscore tune, B-R-O-C-K underscore T-O-O-N. And I am at Hegelbon, H-E-G-E-L-B-O-N on Twitter. And I want to give a big shout out to my wonderful little brother who you may know on Twitter as Anime Brother, um, also known as Bradley Gareth, who finally got us some kick-ass music for this week. So thank you, Bradley. Yes, thank you, Bradley. Thank you, Bradley. Happy birthday, Bradley. birthday is in April. 
but sure. Wait, I thought you said happy birthday. No, no I said thank you. Oh, fuck. Can we redo that? I'm sorry. I'm so nope. <laughs> All right. Have a good month. Have everyone. a good month. <laughs> Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.